everybody welcome back um this is janelle and this is chelsea and we are the desert sirens and we're coming back at you for another round of spooky fun interesting whatever the heck we decided to share yes. with each other it's always different for me each week so <laughs> yeah i i definitely know that you know my thing that i did it on but i just i it's something i've always wanted to talk about on a podcast and i haven't done it on my other one so i thought i would do it on this one. well now i'm excited yes. um but yeah so thank you for joining us for another week and uh, i guess we can go ahead and get started all right get ready for us to sing some siren songs into your ears folks <laughs> All right, so I will go ahead and go first. And this week, uh, we are leaving the Old Town part of Albuquerque, and we're going into downtown. Oh, haven't been there since I partied last. <laughs> nice. I haven't been there. I don't even know. I think I went to a concert, like, a few years ago, like, pre-COVID. Mm, you know what? Actually, I went to go see uh, Joe Gatto downtown i don't even know who that is oh from the impractical jokers oh okay yeah that's why i don't know who he is it's a good show you should watch (laughs) all right well so but this time we're gonna visit the chemo theater oh i know i've been there for several field trips yeah (laughs) when i was in elementary school one of the teachers would perform in the nutcracker there so the whole school would go on a field trip there like every year to go see the nutcracker i love the nutcracker but i haven't been there gosh since like middle school though Uh, it's been a long long time time for me too i should probably go again though yeah but anyway so um there are some supposed hauntings Mm -hmm. at the chemo theater yeah and so i decided that we need to explore that a bit okay let's do it um as per usual i have the history on the building and i went a little crazy with the history because the people that are involved with this whole situation are like so interesting to me at least drama so i don't know if all of this will make it into the final cut but i have quite some learning for (laughs) y'all but so yeah so the chemo theater uh, fun fact, I will go into it a bit more later, but actually, technically, it's supposed to be pronounced uh, himo, oh. but nobody says it that way, because that's not what it looks like. <laughs> yeah, because why would a K ever make that sound? Yeah, <laughs> but I will go more into that later, but yeah, so I will say chemo, just because that's what everyone knows it at, but it is spelled K-I-M-O, for those who don't know. Yes. It's not like chemotherapy. It's, no. like, different. Yes. But anyways, so the chemo theater was built in 1926, which happens to be the same year that Harry Houdini died. Oh. Fun fact, yeah. That's uh, fun. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it opened September 19th of 1927 in downtown Albuquerque, New Mexico, off of Central Avenue. So the architecture of the building is a mix of art deco, which is like sleek, linear appearance with stylized, often geometric, geometric or ornamentation, mm-hmm. starting off with the big works. <laughs> um, but it has a lot of Native American motifs. Mm-hmm. So it is, so the style of the chemo specifically is officially called Pueblo Deco. Um, and the building is also actually known as a Pueblo Deco Picture Palace. Oh. So if you could say that five times fast. <laughs> I can't even say it 
<laughs> but Pueblo Deco became popular when people were constructing film palaces um, based on exotic models like Moorish mosques and Chinese pavilions. Oh, okay. Uh, Let's see, style, oh, so the Pueblo Deco style was only used at a few theaters, but the chemo is the most impressive, as self-proclaimed on their site. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's impressive, too. It is. It's a very interesting building to see. Um, So the man behind the chemo theater is Oreste Bacchechi. I hope I'm saying his name right. Um, He came to the U.S. in 1885 and had a business in a tent near the Albuquerque Railroad Tracks. But as the city grew, he became a liquor dealer and grocery store proprietor. And his wife, Maria, ran a dry goods store at the Elms Hotel, which helped them earn a lot of money. Okay. Um, in 1919, Bacchechi Amusement Association. I don't know if it's Bacchechi or Bacchechi. Bacchechi? I don't know. I'm going to say Bacchechi, but it sounds really wrong. I'll believe whatever you say. (laughs) But anyway, so they um, started the Bacchechi Amusement Association and Joe Barnett operated the Pastime Theater. So they started like running a theater that was already in place. Okay. And then in 1925, Oreste decided to pursue his dream of building his own grand theater. So he wanted a unique Southwest-style theater, and he hire, hired Carl Bowler of Bowler Brothers to design it. Okay. So now I want to go into the architects slash architects behind the chemo theater. Okay. So Carl yes. and Robert were both brothers, mm-hmm. Bowler. Um, Carl was born in 1868, and Robert was born in 1887. Uh, they were architects who specialized in designing movie palaces in the early to mid 1900s. Uh, they were two of ten German. Uh, uh, I'm two, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. What does the term movie palace mean? Does it mean like just theater? So it's basically, like yeah. So basically, like around the early to mid 1900s, like going to the movies became this huge thing to do. Yeah. Like that was one of the biggest pastimes that people could do. So a lot of people who own theaters would make their movie theaters like just super extravagant. Okay. So that people would be attracted to their theater. Got it. Um, okay. Since it was just such a big thing for people to do, they were like, yeah, we want to make it a super awesome, beautiful movie palace. Okay. So that people okay. want to come here. Got it. Got it. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so Carl and Robert Bowler specialized in making these movie palaces. Yeah. Um, they were two out of ten children to German immigrant parents. Okay. That's a lot of kids. Right. <laughs> and neither of them ev- actually had any architecture training. Oh. Like, yeah. They're just like, you know what, let's do architecture, bro. And he's like, all right, bro. Yeah, but what's incredible is that they actually made, like, so many, like, famous movie palaces, which I list later. Because oh, they okay. make some that are famous. Oh. But yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, they had no architecture training. So Carl, he used to work with his brother Will in vaudeville, which is a type of entertainment popular chiefly in the U.S. Um, In the early 20th century, it featured a mixture of specialty acts such as burlesque comedy and song and dance. Mm. So him and his brother Will were all up in that. And then they used that knowledge to design the theaters. Okay. So they were like, hey, we used to put on the shows. Yeah. So now we know what type of stage and everything we need. Okay. Yes. 
Um, and Robert joined Carl as an architect when he was old enough um, because of his love of theater. He just okay. loved theater in general and was like, hey, I want to be with my older brother. Yeah. And Robert was the youngest. Okay. So, yeah, children. that's that's why they kind of emphasize when he was old enough, he joined them because uh, okay. he was like a little kid. Well, I was going to say one of them was born in like 67, 85 yeah. or something. Yeah, 68 and 87. So, yeah, <laughs> uh, almost a full on 20 year age yeah, difference. That's, that's huge. <laughs> but, um, oh, and so fun side fact that I did find, they designed multiple uh, what are called Nickelodeons. Okay. So, like, I thought that was interesting because I read that and I thought of the channel Nickelodeon. Yeah. yeah. So, apparently, a Nickelodeon is a theater that charged a nickel to see movies. Yes, I did know that. You did know yeah, that. I, I did, did not know that until I was reading about this. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, their main office was in Kansas City, Missouri. Then the bowlers believed that decorations should be elegant and refined and strived for luxury and comfort with favor for Spanish and Italian themes. So in the 1920s, um, theaters became a big booming thing, and the Bowler Brothers expanded with offices in Oklahoma and Los Angeles. And Carl focused on the California Southwest area, while Robert handled requests in the Midwest. Okay. So in 1927, uh, they actually worked with Thomas W. Lamb, who is a famous New York architect, to design the Migling Theater, which is uh, Kansas City's grandest movie theater. And if you see pictures of it, like, it's, it looked familiar to me. Like, I think it's Bang Ng movies. <laughs> um, and by 1929, uh, they had designed and remodeled about 88 theaters, and many are now National Register Historic Places, including the chemo. Okay. Um, but the Great Depression did almost destroy the Bowler Brothers firm. Uh, Carl retired. He was just like, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> and Robert ended up closing shop and moving his family into an Ozark cabin uh, in June of 1932 when he almost went break up, uh, bankrupt to weather out the depression. Okay. Um, in the Ozarks? Yeah. Oh my gosh, that ties to my story. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so Robert returned to work when he got a few commissions around 1936, when, but he then worked from home. And just mainly remodeled theaters and new designs were more simpler and more modern. Like, he kind of chilled out. Okay. Um, World War II halted theater construction, but there was a loophole that allowed remodels with certain approved materials. And that's what... So, again, that was another reason Robert just went forward mainly with remodels okay. after the Great Depression. Or during, I guess, they're still technically in it at that yeah. point. Um. The Bowler Brothers firm closed in 1957 when Carl passed away. Robert's new partner didn't work out, and then Robert's wife also passed away. Um, so basically, 1957 sucked for the Bowler yeah. Brothers, and Robert just decided he was done. Okay. Um, he did pa like design like a few drive-in movie theaters that year, but he was done. Okay. Um, so just kind of like a not fun but interesting side bit is that both brothers did die of heart attacks oh. um and they died let me see they died they also died almost exactly 20 years apart so oh, dang. they were crazy. born almost exactly 20 years apart and died almost 20 years apart dang. so anyways but they both passed away of heart attacks but anyways rewinding back a bit 
So they like lived about the same amount of time regardless. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so we're winding back to Carl Bowler designing the chemo. Okay. So Carl actually traveled around New Mexico. He visited Acoma and the Islega Pueblos and the Navajo people, mm-hmm. um, the Navajo Nation, also known as the Diné. Mm-hmm. Um, he like actually visited them, and he did this so that he could go into months of research to make sure that his designs were accurate to Native American symbolism and their beliefs and everything, like. I thought that was pretty cool that yeah. he actually took the time to research it and make sure what he did was right. Yeah. Out of like respect. Yeah. Cause you don't hear that. a lot about people being respectful no. to people Especially of color back then. <laughs> yeah. And so anyway, so he traveled for months, he did tons of research and then he made his design of the building and Oreste loved it. Um, remember Oreste is the one who's funding this whole thing. Okay, yes. <laughs> and, Every detail of the design was chosen to have historical significance and meaning. So, like, multiple things. So, the, the plaster ceiling beams were textured like logs, and they had dance and hunting scenes painted on them. Mm-hmm. The air vents are disguised as Navajo rugs. The chandeliers are shaped like war drums and Native American funeral canoes. The wrought iron bergs um, descending the stairs are also a Native American motif. Okay. Um, the there are garlanded buffalo skulls with glowing amber eyes for light fixtures. Mm-hmm. Those used to scare me as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's also rain clouds, bergs, and swastika symbols used in the designs. But yes. we need to remember the Navajo swastika symbolized life, freedom, and happiness um, prior to Hitler screwing that up in world war ii yeah i remember like as kids we would always be like what the heck yeah (laughs) yeah but all the colors chosen for the designs were also significant uh yellow for for so all these are for native americans um so yellow uh signifies the life-giving sun white is the approaching morning red is the setting sun in the west and black is dark clouds from the north um and then um, Carl and Oreste, because Oreste had to approve it, but they commissioned a nine large oil painted murals by Carl von Hassler, who completed it on 20 foot tall scaffolds, and it took him months to paint those. So I also found out that Carl von Hassler is a very interesting person. Oh, okay. <laughs> So he's the artist behind the chemo murals. Mm-hmm. And if you see them, they're gorgeous. Like, they're beautiful. Um, Carl Van Hassler was born in 1887, which now that I'm looking at that, was the same year that Robert Baller was born. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he was born in 1887. Mm-hmm. He passed away in 1969. Uh, he was another German immigrant who developed his art skills in the German Naval Academy where he was enrolled at the age of 14 by his parents. When he was 16, he saw Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, which led to his desire to go to America. When he got there in 1912, after his naval service and six years at Dusseldorf Art Academy, um, he got there and he settled in New York and studied with people in what is called the Ashcan Group. Okay. So the Ashcan School, or group, 
uh, starting around 1900 with a group of realist artists who challenged American Impressionists and academics, which were more popular at the time. The term came from a 1915 drawing called Disappointments of the Ashcan by George Bellows, mm -hmm. which got a lot of bad and good publicity. Like, it just really blew up. Every, it was in all the newspapers across the country. Okay. Um, so then they started calling them Ashcan artists. Uh, they were urban realists who believed in art for life's sake instead of art for art's sake. I didn't okay. look into that a whole lot, but I guess that was a lot of the sayings going around at the time when it came to art. Okay. Um, so the Ashcan School concentrated on art on New York's vitality and recording its seamy or sordid disreputable side and kept in mind current events and social political rhetoric. Uh, despite advocating immersion in modern actualities, they were not social critics or reformers, nor did they make any radical propaganda. In fact, they had a mostly pleasant middle-class lives. Okay. Like, they just made the art showing what was going on, but they were like, we're not, you know, if people want to do something about it, they can do it, but we'll just live our lives. We're just making uh, the art. Okay. Interesting. Um, they avoided civil unrest, class tensions, and grit of the streets, so their art was more tame and positive than European counterparts mm -hmm. and reformist American photographers. Some of them continued working into the 1940s, but the movement faded around that time. Okay. So anyways, 1917. So this is a few years after Carl Van Hassler got I there. I think it's kind of interesting that like they're from Germany, you know? Yeah. And they're painting with swastikas at that time. Right. Oh, that's that is, I didn't even me. think about that. I was just thinking about that because I'm like, yeah, I get it's a part of like Native American like art too and like, um, but it's just interesting. I wonder if it was like when they were even painting them, they thought of that. Yeah, I don't know I'm because, because I mean, the building was made in 1927. Which was like after World War Two and stuff like that. That was pre World War Two. Oh yeah, it was nineteen. Because World War Two was in the nineteen forties. Oh, nineteen thirty nine, right? Was when it started. I think so. Like yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm just. Okay. Got it. So I don't know if Hitler was becoming popular just yet. If the yeah. Nazi movement was becoming popular just yet, because I would think if that was starting to rise, I don't know if they would have added those. And then, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um. But yeah, I don't know. It's still kind of ironic, though. Yeah, I was <laughs> thinking about that. Um, but yeah, so... Okay, yeah, so in 1917, um, many Ashcan painters had moved, actually moved to New Mexico as the U.S. prepared to enter World War I. Okay. Um, Von Hassler decided instead to join the U.S. Army and fight um, for the U.S. Okay. Uh, which actually ended up getting him disowned by his family because mm -hmm. his brother on the other side got killed. Oh, okay. And his family was like, how could you fight for this side? Yeah, like, like the enemy. Yeah. So he ended up being kind of alone out here. Okay. <laughs> you know, he didn't have his family support anymore. Yeah. Um, in 1922, he returned from his service and moved to New Mexico, but he didn't go to Santa Fe with his friends. Instead, he decided to come to Albuquerque. Uh, he got inspiration in his art for from the Southwest and his surroundings. He studied indigenous plants, animals, and people in New Mexico. 
and he especially focused on the Navajo culture by spending time at the Manuelito trading post and talking to and sketching people and even became proficient in the Navajo language. Oh, wow. Uh, he, a favorite subject to sketch or paint for him was Pueblos. Uh, he would try to paint every village he came across. Oh, wow. Yeah. And in 1927, all of his studies of Native Americans in the Southwest were used for his first major commission, which was the murals at the Chemo Theater. Okay. Uh, those were 10 panel paintings of the legendary seven cities of Cibola, Conquistadores, thought were cities of gold, but they were just Native farming villages. Mm -hmm. The murals were restored in 1989 and are still in the theater today. Uh, as time went on, he, in 1930, he was more well known for Southwest landscape paintings. He actually became an expert on nature lore and any plant in New Mexico. Oh, wow. Like his students said, you could ask him about any plant and he knew like everything about it. Oh, that's really cool. And he felt that you had to really know nature before painting it. Oh. Like, he was very into knowing what you paint and yeah. doing your research. Um, he also had a lot of knowledge of paint chemicals and had ways to manipulate the paint and canvases to improve the quality of his paintings. But he took all of that information with him to the grave. <laughs> like, he developed all this stuff, but when people would interview and ask him, he was like, nah, it's mine. Oh my gosh. And... Yeah, and they don't know if he intentionally took it to his grave. They were Some people think he may have planned on passing it on. Mm. soon before his passing but it just didn't happen <laughs> oh man um but yeah because some people even say that some of his paintings the way that they keep their vibrancy over time is just incredible oh, okay. um he did complete actually a lot of murals in buildings around albuquerque but many except for the chemo and the airport mm -hmm. ceiling there's a ceiling decoration in the airport that was his okay. everything else was removed or destroyed at one point or another why don't know people are dumb oh, okay it's albuquerque <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but he has become known as a famous albuquerque artist and has sold work around the world oh, okay um so anyways all those fun people mm -hmm. now we come back to the chemo okay <laughs> and so it cost a hundred and fifty thousand dollars at the time to complete and it took less than a year to build uh, today, that would actually be $2.6 million wow. to build. Uh, opening night had an overflowing crowd watch performances by Native Americans from nearby pueblos and reservations. Oh. Um, and here's where we're going to start talking about the name. So the Islega Pueblo governor, Pablo Abeta, mm -hmm. he won $50. Today, it would have been 870 oh. uh, He won $50 for coming up with the name for the theater. Uh, chemo combines two Tiwa words, meaning mountain lion or king of its, of its kind. Mm -hmm. uh, that's where I found out it's technically pronounced Himo. Okay. Uh, Sensex used outside of the Tiwa culture now, it's a dead word and not used by native Tiwa speakers anymore. Oh. So I guess when it become when a word becomes out of their culture, like gets pulled by out of the culture, I guess they kind of just say, nope, never mind, it's not ours. Like... Meaning what? Like, they don't have mountain lions around anymore? So they don't I'm sure they, them. like, developed a new word or something, oh, okay. but um, but it does say that that is now considered a dead word for them. Uh, oh, and for anyone who's wondering, Tiwa is referencing the Tiwa Pueblo Native Americans. 
There were originally 35 Tiwa Pueblos in the Rio Grande Valley, but over time they have combined into four, which is the Sandia, I might butcher this, but it looks like Poire, Alameda, and Isleta. Okay. Uh, so when the theater itself, so the theater itself, so when it's packed, like has a whole audience, mm -hmm. the balcony would actually drop four to eight inches in the middle. Um, it has oh, no support, right? <laughs> it has no support in the middle, but it's actually designed to give and sway. So because of that, what like they designed what? it so it won't I'm fall like, apart. Sadly, Oreste, he died a year after the chemo was completed. Oh, wow. So he like got his dream. He got yeah. this grand theater and then he passed away. Oh, I mean, at least he got to see it open, I guess, yeah. but... Yeah. To only get to enjoy it for a year. I know. <laughs> um, but his sons took over and they combined vaudeville, um, out of town road shows, and movies and entertainment. So they like kind of combined everything at the yeah. kingdom. And they also established a luncheonette and curio shop on either side of the entrance. And later, they had the Kiva High restaurant on the second floor and KGGM radio station on the third floor. Um, in the early 1960s, a large fire caused a lot of destruction at the building. Uh, the stage was nearly destroyed and it's, the fire severely damaged the front of the auditorium. What caused the fire? You know, nothing I found would say it. Really? Yeah, they were just like, oh, this fire happened and it sucked. And I'm like... Where did this fire come from? Interesting, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the continued disrepair as many people and businesses moved further from downtown in the 60s and 70s um, caused, so the destruction from the fire and then as people moved away and weren't as interested in hanging out downtown for a while, um, it just got more and more dilapidating. Okay. And the building was almost destroyed in 1977 but Albuquerque citizens voted to purchase and restore the building. So various bonds have been used since to continually restore the chemo. Okay. Um, if you go to their website, which I'm sure we'll have a link in the notes, uh, you can actually also donate oh, okay. if you want to donate towards the upkeep and yeah, keeping for sure it nice. Yeah. So anyways, all this fun history, yeah. all these interesting things about the chemo that you probably may have not wanted to know, but hey, now you do. <laughs> now we know it. <laughs> so now there is some hauntings. Yes, let's get into the ghosts. Or are there? Dun, dun, so. dun. <laughs> <laughs> anyways, so the chemo is potentially the most well-known haunted theater in New Mexico or even the Southwest. And it... There have been many publications and TV appearances um, and all sorts of media covering this theater and its hauntings. So just in case, just when you thought you had enough, you're going to get a tiny bit more history. So we're going to Thursday, August 2nd, 1951. Okay. The concession water heater uh, blew up into the lobby due to a defective thermostat while about a thousand people were watching a film called coming around the mountain oh my goodness um but then if you're wondering at the movie i do have information about the movie but we'll talk about the blowing up first <laughs> um 
So anyways, when this water heater blew up, a uh, plaster burning steam and glass exploded into the lobby and injured eight people. Okay. Uh, multiple broken arms and legs. Uh, there was a man called Corporal Mike Tulio who had many injuries all over his body. He almost looked like he had been shot by a shotgun. Oh my gosh. And he did lose his right eye. Um, now, the book that I found out most about this haunting from, it's called Mysterious New Mexico. And I'll go a bit more into that book a little later. Okay. Uh, but in that book, it does have firsthand accounts okay. of people sharing what had happened at the time. It was very interesting to read about. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, among the people who were involved in this explosion, there was a boy uh, who was named Robert Darnall Jr. Okay. He was a six-year-old boy who was fatally injured. Oh. Um he died in the ambulance en route to the hospital. Okay. So he didn't die on impact, but later yeah. on. Um, he was there with two friends, an 11-year-old and a 7-year-old. And they were actually watching a short documentary. I don't know if this was, like, before the movie or if they showed documentaries throughout. Or, or I can't remember if the chemo, because I think it only has one stage. Yeah. But I guess there was a part where they were showing a documentary. And... It was about U.S. Naval aviation training in Florida, mm-hmm. and a loud siren scared him. Oh. So he had rung out and rung into the lobby. Oh, my gosh. Right as this explosion happened. Oh, no. Um, unfortunately, his head was crashed when the, uh, his head was crushed when the blast flung him into a wall. Oh, that's so sad. Um... So, yeah, like I said, he was taken in an ambulance, but he didn't make it to the hospital. Okay. Uh, So, the explosion didn't actually cause much damage to the building, though. Because I guess the water heater was underneath the staircase. Oh, okay. And the staircase kind of contained it a bit. Oh. Um. But, anyway, so, that all happened. And decades after Robert's death, people started claiming that he was haunting the building. Uh, theater staff believed that performers must leave Bobby some sort of offering, whether it's gifts, toys, sweets, etc. Things that a little boy would like. Yeah. Um, for shows to go well or else mischief happens. Oh my goodness, the Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But And then um, Robert's ghost is referred to as Bobby in a lot of cases. Okay. But, um, as the book that I read mentioned, a niece of his, so like, you know, Bobby died young, but he had a siblings. Oh, okay. So one of his nieces, Mm -hmm. I guess, contacted the author of Mysterious New Mexico. His name is Benjamin Radford Mm -hmm. while he was writing this book. And she turned around and she said, you know what? Robert was never called Bobby. Like, so it drives them nuts. Yeah. You know? And she was like, if he was ever called anything other than Robert, it was Rob. So a lot of websites, if you look up this haunting, will call him Bobby. But I'm just going to go ahead and call him Robert. Okay. Because if he wasn't, if he didn't go by Bobby, that's rude. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But anyway, so there was a supposed tradition of crew members hanging donuts on a water pipe along a wall behind the stage after some donuts in the break area appeared to have childlike bite marks 
So it was just that one person on a diet, like, I'm just going to take one bite. <laughs> right? It's a ghost. Exactly. <laughs> oh, you don't know how <laughs> on the nose you are. Um, but anyways, there is a famous story of a crew member or a director in some versions who removed the donuts because it grossed them out um, on Christmas in 1974 and everything was ruined for that performance after. So they said props fell, electrical went haywire, actors fell, lines were forgotten, a whole chunk of the cast was late. They're all up, there's not donuts, we're not coming. Exactly! (laughs) Um, so Dennis Potter, the technical manager, at least, so this book was written in 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, so back then he was him. I don't know if he still is the technical manager, okay. but he was there then. Yeah. Um, he claims to have witnessed this whole thing. Oh. And he says the director of, uh, Andrew Shea of the New Mexico Repertory Theater for A Christmas Carol threw away the donuts and started it all. <laughs> He blames Andrew. Uh, After the show went downhill, the director bought a ton of donuts and hung them all over backstage. And the next shows apparently went well. And so began the tradition of leaving Robert gifts. Mm, Okay. Um, Some say other mischief has happened with accompanying child laughter. And there have been claims of seeing his apparition but not many like there's like a couple claims okay. and i think i go into that a bit later okay so some people have investigated the haunting there was ron and sherry andry and their former group called the new mexico paranormal investigators okay. uh they investigated over one night and they claimed to find anomalous emf energy wisps of energy emf energy wisps of energy mm-hmm. and uh, they even claim to have a photo of bobby's ghost oh, but okay. you can't find it anywhere oh i was I gonna ask what like. <laughs> i tried to look it up i could not find anything okay. <laughs> um so the southwest ghost hunters association which we've heard so much about yes. already um they investigated as well multiple times and had originally published that it was haunted um benjamin rafford uh, does share that after he published his investigations Mm -hmm. um they changed their mind and deleting all of their findings from their site why (laughs) because and i will go into radford's investigation more thoroughly because it was very intriguing how he did all this okay um i even tried to look up their original findings about the chemo you really can't there's nothing about it and the only thing about it is a couple brief articles online by Cody Polston that mentions the haunting, but it doesn't say if it's haunted or not. Okay. Um, so anyways, quote unquote, Bobby supposedly has been debunked. Okay. So like I said, I got this book called Mysterious New Mexico by Benjamin Ragford. And he is a science-based paranormal investigator. Uh, He grew up in New Mexico and has investigated mysterious phenomena in 16 countries around the world. And he uses science and scientific methods and thorough research to investigate paranormal and other strangeness. Uh, He makes sure to actually investigate the places firsthand and do his own original research rather than just take stories for granted. Okay. and after he worked in all these places, he was like, hey, I want to go back to my home state and start investigating some stuff over there. Uh, 
uh, let's see, I have a lot of information about him, but, <laughs> uh, he is involved just basically in a lot of, like, scientific method stuff, and he's a research fellow, um, with a committee for skeptical inquiry, and he's written thousands of articles, 12 books on various topics like urban legends, paranormal, critical thinking, and media literacy. He also made two short films, co-founded two podcasts, made board games and puzzles, and has made guest appearances on multiple TV shows. Oh, wow. So if anyone knows yes. anything, it seems like <laughs> yeah. he knows quite a bit. <laughs> but once he, so anyway, so he was like, hey, I've heard about the chemo theater a lot. I want to take a look into this. And as he started doing research, everything started unraveling kind of fast uh -oh. when it comes to Robert Ghosts. Uh -oh. <laughs> um, so the supposed date of the Ruined Christmas Carol play was supposed to be December 25th of 1974. Mm -hmm. So he teamed up with a man called Mike Smith, and Smith actually found out that A Christmas Carol was not being shown that day. Uh oh. It was actually a porno. <laughs> on Christmas. Apparently. <laughs> I guess the chemo at the time was trying to go like the adult film route for a bit to see uh. where that would go. And so yeah, so Christmas Carol was definitely not happening that day. <laughs> what I want to do on Christmas is go down to the chemo and watch some porn with some strangers. Perfect. <laughs> but after they did some more research, they revealed that the supposed Doom show may have actually been around December 1986. Okay. Uh, once the, and in their book, in the book, he outlines how they found all this stuff. To me, it was fascinating, but we only have so much time for this podcast. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> Anyways, once the real date was found, Ragford and Smith could find and interview witnesses. They talked to Steve Schwartz, who played Bob Cratchit who you know and they would go in and they would just kind of say like hey do you remember this show like how did it go and this guy he was like oh yeah it was a wonderful performance and they were like um are you are you sure like yeah. we heard there was all this stuff that happened but he was very confused when they <laughs> told him about like the show being ruined by a poltergeist he was like what are you talking about <laughs> Well, so somebody just made this story up and just everybody believed it? <laughs> and Radford does talk about that a bit. He says that he thinks, because he tries to be very respectful of people, especially if he finds out that the facts aren't quite there. Okay. Um, he does say, he's like, you know, he has a degree in psychology and he's like, memory's a weird thing. <laughs> you know? Yeah. He's like, it's possible because he spoke to Dennis Potter himself uh -huh. and found out a lot of this. Okay. And who says he was a witness to this. And he says, he's like, you know what? Maybe Dennis remembered a few instances that were separate, but he just combined it in his mind as time went on. Okay. You know. Interesting. Um, and then everybody just kind of took his word for it. Yeah. Like, you know, he tried to kind of give people the benefit of the doubt. But yeah, yeah basically somebody made a story a little crazy and everybody ran with it oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so steve schwartz was like i don't know what the heck you're talking about and then he also interviewed andrew shea the director who supposedly threw the donuts out mm -hmm. and caused all this yeah um he said that he only recalled the children actors being late like but they were only late for like rehearsal 
but he oh. got them there in time for the actual performance. Okay. Because apparently all of them had taken off to go see the new Star Wars movie at the time. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, so they had to go literally to all the th- movie theaters and get them out and be oh. like, come to the play. <laughs> oh my gosh, you couldn't have watched it on a different day. <laughs> right. But yeah, but other than the kids being late, he really didn't recall anything else happening. Mm. And he also didn't even know the story of Robert's ghost. (laughs) Like, they were interviewing him, and they were like, hey, so this happened, supposedly, when you were doing this play. And he's like, this is the first I've ever heard of it. (laughs) And they were like, yeah, apparently you threw away all these donuts. And he's like, why? What? (laughs) He's like, somebody's trying to tarnish my reputation. (laughs) Yeah, and then he was like, and then they were like, yeah, and supposedly you bought all these donuts. And he's like, do you know how expensive it would be to buy that many donuts? <laughs> Just to like, hang them from the ceiling and draw ants? Yeah, he's like, no. <laughs> I didn't God, do that. Um, and he said that, in fact, he d- couldn't recall anything supernatural happening for the eight years that he directed at the chemo. Okay. Um, nothing, also, nothing about the performance in the newspapers from around the time ever said anything negative um, Ollie Reed Jr., a drama critic for the Albuquerque Tribune, Tribune at the time, didn't recall anything unusual being said about that show. <laughs> um, so as research destroyed the origin story of Robert the Poltergeist, mm-hmm. Ragford thinks that Dennis Potter... Oh, so this is what I was saying. He may have just remembered wrong and goes into the psychology of how memory can be odd. Um <laughs> Many publications on The Haunting had just accepted Potter's story as fact without much research, and they just copied each other. So it was literally just one person with a story? That's what it seems like. <laughs> like, one person was just like, hey, this crazy thing happened, and everybody was like, what? I know, and it's still, like, considered haunted to this day. Like, I hear about that. Yeah. I will say, there's a little bit of hope still, but we're okay. gonna go okay. down this rabbit hole a little bit longer. Okay. <laughs> um... So there, like I said, there are a couple separate claims to have seen Bobby's ghost, or sorry, Robert. Yeah. Um, there's a girl named Jewel Sanchez who says she saw a boy on the stairs at the chemo. Uh, Ragford was skeptical because other information she gave was false, and others he spoke to were skeptical of anything she shared. <laughs> Like, literally, <laughs> if he brought up her name to anyone else, they were like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, the Albuquerque Journal did have a story on a woman who saw a boy in the window of the chemo from across the street, as told by Craig Rivera, who was the chemo manager at the time. Um, Ragford's analysis of the story points out multiple inconsistencies that lead to questioning the legitimacy of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, like, he points out the woman who saw it never was identified. Almost uh, like, is it weird for there to be kids in the chemo theater looking at uh, the window? In the story, supposedly she saw him in the middle of the night. Okay. So that's where it gets weird. Where are you? What are you doing in downtown Albuquerque in the middle of the night? And that's <laughs> that's Radford's point. Yeah. He's like, As a woman. he's like, wait, why were you downtown? Because supposedly she was working across the street, and he's like, why were you working in the middle of the yeah. night? And um. But yeah, like she said, they said the boy was sick in the evening. The woman called in a panic the next morning. But he's like, the timeline doesn't make sense. Like, why would you call in a panic the next morning if you saw him in the evening? She she just hoped he survived the night. Right. (laughs) And if it was night, again, how was the... And she had like a detailed description of the boy. Mm. And he was like, 
why how could you see this at night yeah like what the street yeah um also as a side note uh the there are there is a tradition of hanging donuts at the theater okay but when you actually dig into it, it was never an offering for Robert's ghost. Mm-hmm. Like now it may have become, but originally it was actually just that someone would get donuts for the employees and last one would often be left and not touched until way later. So the staff started hanging, o- hanging the leftover donuts off the electrical conduit on the back wall as a joke. They were just <laughs> like, oh, nobody's going to eat this donut. Fine, I'll hang it. And then... <laughs> Um, and it just kind of became like a joke, like a theater tradition. Oh, okay. Um, and then, whatchamacallit, Andrew Shea's supposed removal was discouraged because it messed with the theater tradition or superstition, and then later was blamed on a ghost. Like, oh, they were okay. like, oh, well, maybe it was a ghost. And, <laughs> um, and basically, and this was the point in the book where Radford pointing out that Dennis Potter was the genesis of Robert's ghost. Oh, okay. Um, like we've been saying. Yeah. Um, Radford also went into how the New Mexico paranormal investigators, they claim to have orb evidence. Uh, orb evidence is always questionable. And I, I agree with that. Yeah. Because it's so easy to be, be dust, dust or a yeah. bug or anything. It's so yeah. difficult to figure that out. Um, they also did a Halloween segment in 2007 with KRQE TV. Mm-hmm. They claimed and showed odd EMF activity. When Radford went in and ex- experimented on this idea, mm-hmm. he actually found out, or I don't know if he knew this before, but he showed that large television cameras mm-hmm. actually give off EMF signals. Makes sense. So, and even like from multiple feet away. Yeah. So he's like, so if you're on the news doing a segment and you have this giant camera you're gonna get weird emf signals that's interesting so i wonder if that's how it is like with all ghost hunting shows right i was starting to question my life when (laughs) i I read that (laughs) but um anyways there's not really any close to legit paranormal claims of uh robert being beyond the ruined christmas carol and ragford does conclude that the chemo is not haunted okay um also um ragford made a point to kind of say like we should also let robert's ghost like let robert just rest in peace yeah just let his memory because he tried reaching out to robert's family and he said anytime he spoke to any of his family members they were just not happy with robert being portrayed as a ghost and they said they were not happy to talk about the ghost story. They felt exploited and they don't want their brother, uncle, etc., to be remembered this way. Yeah. Um, and the niece, I believe it's the same niece who pointed out that he was never Bobby. Yeah. Uh, they said that she, again, he was never known as Bobby and also that people need to stop using her family as a selling point. Yeah. So none of his family really seems to have a positive outlook on this, which I kind of get. Like, you yeah. lost a small child, a yeah, six-year-old in a boy. Way. Yeah. And then people claim that now his ghost stays at the theater and hunts. And causes problems. Yeah, and it's you know, just, and like, no substantial proof for that. Yeah. But I will say, just as a small little tiny shred of hope if you really want the chemo theater to be haunted yes we always want old buildings (laughs) there are a few websites that mention a ghost of a woman who basically just chills in the hallways Hmm. she's 
not known to do anything crazy. She just apparently wanders in the hallways of the chemo theater. Really? Uh, yeah, Radford never mentioned this. Uh-huh. He focused mainly on Robert's ghost. Mm-hmm. But other websites that I looked up about the chemo theater, they kept mentioning this woman who just chills in the hallways. And is there any, like, <clears throat> explanation of who she might be or what she looks like or anything like that? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> it's literally, like, every time it's just, like, two sentences of, like, hey, there's this woman who hangs out in the hallways. Like, it doesn't say she's, like, from the 1940s or 50s. Or yeah, I think one mentioned, like, that she is an older dress, but, I mean, it what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, if I wore a dress from the 90s, some people exactly. would think I had an older dress. <laughs> but, so, yeah. Um, but I may cover a couple more, st- another story or two from this book that I read. But it, I found um, Benjamin Radford's research and how he investigates these things very intriguing. Yeah. Um, and it's an incredible book to read. has a really weird cover. <laughs> oh, okay. has a cover of, like, this, I think it's supposed to be La Llorona. Oh, okay. But she's like this weird ghost woman with spiders coming out of her mouth and she's holding a baby and it's just really weird. Oh, I think you I think I showed that. you the book. Like, yeah. Oh, Cover looks really weird. I'm weirded out reading in public, but it is a very, very interesting book that goes over a bunch of different weird things in New Mexico. Okay. And it is the full title is Mysterious New Mexico, Miracles, Magic, and Monsters in the Land of Enchantment. And it is by Benjamin Ragford. Um, again, we'll have probably that whole title and everything in the notes, but that's what I got. All right. <laughs> it's a good story, a lot of history. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I liked it, but I'm sad that it's not really hunted. Yeah, right? Instead. I was like, Unless this guy is, is there I will say reason. this book is very interesting, but he's been crushing a lot of my dreams a yeah. little bit. <laughs> I mean, he's very like, at least he's not... I don't know, like, the other guy you used, you know, is kind of, like, a little bit less scientific about it, I guess. Yeah. Like he's actually trying to debunk him, which is good. Well, and that's the thing, is he's he's open to paranormal stuff. Like, yeah. he's open to the possibility, but he is just so thorough, because he's like, I want to know. Yeah. That if I believe in this, that this is... Like, I have to have hard proof. Yeah. Which is good, I guess, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and there's oh, some other cases that I've already read of his where I think there's some things you just need a bit of faith yeah like you yeah. know instead of like if i don't have an actual picture or video of an apparition then it's not real yeah, yeah. <laughs> which are hard to capture yes yeah yes. well good job i liked it thank you okay so for my story today i'm doing something um very very popular and i have a feeling you've heard about it because you listen to a podcast that I know has talked about it before, but I've always wanted to cover it. I am going to talk about Lake Lanier. It sounds familiar. Okay. I think if I talk about it a little more, it'll probably, probably, probably be like, Oh yeah, I've heard of that. Okay. So Lake Lanier is located in the foothills of Northern of the Northern Georgia, uh, Georgia mountains, just North of Atlanta. The lake is a man-made lake and was created in the 1950s by flooding valley communities, putting them underwater. Yes. Several structures, including a cemetery, now lie below the lake. This has caused many legends and stories to surface about the lake being supernatural and extremely haunted. Oh, so this is the one where people can, like, swim down and you see, like, buildings and stuff? Yes. Okay, yes, yes, yes. 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 Um... For tons of locals, this spot is super popular for recreational water sports. 
There have been more than 200 deaths at the lake since 1994, but there's been a total of six to 700 deaths in total since it was made. Holy cow. Which is a lot. It's not normal for lakes in, Amer- in Northern America. Um, <clears throat> this seemingly fuels the haunting and cursed stories. There's a lot that surrounds this lake. Okay. So the controversy surrounding Lake Lanier started before it was formed. The land thrived before it was forced underwater. It was literally, like, lush. There was so much, like, natural lives, like, Mother Nature there, like, animals, plants, everything flourished there. Um, And then there were communities and homes down there, and, like, it was a whole thriving community, which is very interesting to me because I'm like, well, why did they have to choose this land to force underwater. That's what I was just going to ask you. Yeah, like, if it was thriving, why did they... I don't know. Specifically, I tried to figure out why they chose this specific area, but basically what happened was the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers went in there and they wanted to provide, like, a man-made lake that could provide natural water power to Atlanta and the surrounding areas, and they just chose this land because there was a way that they could dam off a lake or a uh yeah a lake that uh or not a lake sorry like a river they uh-huh. could dam it off and then create like this natural water supply uh-huh and uh, they just they're like i know there's a bunch of stuff here already but let's just demolish it and put water there instead. so it was the easiest spot i guess which okay. is still weird because i had a lot of stuff there what's weird yeah um the land that was there was a lot of farmland that was owned by families that had been there in their family for generations so at first people were like well no this land has been in my family for generations like it's farmland we have it it's already like established and we're living here we're thriving and the government was just like offering them money to try to get them out and i guess they offered enough because eventually um, about 700 families sold their land. Holy 700, cow. Yes. And it's 56,000 acres of land that the government bought for this man-made lake. Dang. Yes. They built a dam on the Chattahoochee River to create the lake. That's the river that I was Okay. About. Yeah. Um, in 1956, people gathered on roads and bridges to watch as the water filled up the land. Um, erasing generations worth of memories. So, like, just imagine, like, standing there just watching this land that you used to live on just slowly fill up with water. Well, like, your childhood home, you know? Like, yeah, if somebody just ran over your childhood home. Like, like, hey, you know this little valley in Albuquerque? We're just going to fill it with water. Imagine if that happened. Oh, my gosh. That would be crazy. (laughs) Um, When the lake was created, there was even contention in naming it. Some wanted to name it after local Georgian politicians, but they ended up naming it after Sidney Lanier, an 18th century Georgian poet who wrote Song of the Chattahoochee, which is um, like a, a native um, tribe that used to live there. Oh, okay. Yes, that's what the name is from. Along with providing electric power and water, the lake also offered flood protection from Lake Chattahoochee. Today, the lake has about 60, 625 billion gallons of water in it, like, which if you look at it, it's so pretty. It really is. Like, it's surrounded. There's probably, I think they said somewhere, like, around 200 little islands that pop out of the water, and it's just 
so green and beautiful and it's got like mil like <clears throat> hundreds of thousands of miles worth of shoreline too it's really pretty hmm. i'm looking it up now yes, because i need to see yes <laughs> so when the u.s army came in to clear the land they removed whatever could be considered dangerous uh, supposedly from uprooting trees and removing wooden structures that could float away such as barns as for the cemetery that was there they were able to identify and relocate marked graves. However, there are several unmarked graves that were left behind. Because at that time... Yes, it is, right? Sorry, I just started <laughs> seeing the pictures, and that is That's a really gorgeous pretty. place. I can see why a bunch of people want to go there yeah, now. it's a huge... It's a super popular vacation spot. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so at the time, the unmarked graves were left behind because the technology at the time was not... Um, as far advanced to be able to penetrate the ground and find all these graves that were unmarked. Okay. Um, Caesar Yeber, a, smokes, a spokesperson for U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, said there could be unmarked graves from the antebellum and Civil War periods or even of Native American origin from pre-colonial and ancient times. Because this land was has always been occupied by some kind of person. And a lot of the times for Native Americans, they, they do, like, different forms of marking their graves than we're used to. So yeah. to us, it's like, well, how do we know if a grave's under here without penetrating technology? Yeah. Um, there's even a racing track that was left behind that's under that water. Oh, it's just so crazy to think that um, they did remove all of the bleachers, though, so that the bleachers wouldn't, like, float up. Yeah. But if you go underwater, you could literally see it's, like... The outline, yeah. yeah. Um, concrete blocks of foundations of small structures were left behind as well. Like, sometimes you can... Because I've actually went on to a deep dive on YouTube of, like, people who have done dives in, like, near, linear. And there's, like, chimneys and all that stuff is still down there, too. Holy and there's even, like, full-size trees still underwater, too. Which, <sighs> like, imagine swimming and then, like, something tickles your foot and you look down and it's, like, a, a tree underwater that's interesting to me so like does the sun still penetrate enough into the water that it keeps the trees alive or i mean they didn't really talk about that necessarily but that's the thing about like linear is that on the surface it looks really pretty and clean mm -hmm. but it's actually really murky and super dense um i'll talk about this a little bit later but a lot of people who swim in the lake talk about it being almost as thick as like molasses Dang. Yeah, because yeah. it's just got so much stuff under there that's, like, rotting and stuff, you know? Like, it makes me question the, them allowing people to get in. If exactly. <laughs> that's what I was thinking, too, when I was researching this. I'm like, I already have a thing about fresh water because of, like, you know, um, parasites and stuff. It's really oh, yeah. scary in fresh water yeah. like that. But also, like, a man-made one where it's got, like, a whole thousands of years of history underneath it where people used to live and stuff it's i don't know how i feel about that either <laughs> freaks me out if there ain't chlorine in it we might have a problem <laughs> exactly if it's not highly chemical has a lot of chemicals in it probably not <laughs> um <clears throat> during droughts when the water levels are super low um a lot of stuff will come out too like they'll find tons of stuff like they'll find stuff from lawn chairs to fishing poles to like pickup trucks like all kinds of stuff that they find down there it's a whole truck just popping out of the <laughs> exactly a whole truck and that blows me away that they didn't like you said they cleared out some stuff but like you would think they would clear out a truck 
Well, okay. <laughs> the truck thing is a little bit. Uh, I'll get more into like stuff that's happened at the lake since okay. it's become a lake. But yeah, like they find stuff in that lake all the time, and I don't know if it's all all necessarily from before it was water, but oh, also during while it people you know, be doing crazy things there. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Um, but it's, it's like, it's so murky and dense down there that they'll just be like, oh, what's down here? Oh, a tribe. <laughs> cool. Which is probably a good dumping ground for if you're uh, a criminal. Possibly. <laughs> but people are diving in it all the time, so it'll probably be found. Anyways, um, they have found, like, submerged roads down there. So just, like, imagine diving in a lake and being like, oh, that used to be a road somebody lived off of or something. Tire parts um, have also been exposed for some reason, and a lot of car stuff is found down there. Hmm. Um, things found, they have even found, I don't, which I don't know where they came from, I didn't really research it, but there's catfish down there that they say are, like, the size of, like, buses. Holy like, they're huge. Cow. And people, like, freak out because they're like, oh my gosh, my foot's caught on a lawn chair, and then, oh my gosh, a catfish the size of a bus. Like, crazy stuff. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Um, there's even sunken houseboats that people have found there and just so many, so much debris down there. Um, despite its creepy origins and turbulent past over the, um, with over 200 deaths, the lake still remains popular with about 12 million visitors a year. Holy cow. It's a lot of people visiting. Yeah. Um, the curiosity and urban legends bring people out in search of adventure and the possibility of running into ghosts. Ooh. So I'll talk about the most popular ghost. Um, there's like a couple stories about ghosts there, but this is the one that had the most detail behind it. And she is called the Lady of the Lake. Ooh. Because there's always going to be some lady in a dress somewhere haunting something, <laughs> just like in your theater. So the legend, um, in this legend in April of 1958, two friends, Delia Mae Parker Young and Susie Roberts, were leaving a dance. After getting gas and running out without paying for it. Oh, so, lovely. Yeah, <laughs> great. Their car careened off of a bridge and crashed into the water below. They disappeared and were never seen again. So a year later... A fisherman came across a decomposed, unidentified body floating next to one of the bridges. It wasn't until the 1990s when officials finally found a 1950s Ford sedan submerged in the water with Susie still inside. Oh, so Susie was stuck in. Yeah, so they were saying that the other body belonged to Delia, which they did confirm that. Okay. Um, some say that they have seen the ghost of Delia wearing the blue dress she har- had borrowed from Susie that night to wear to the dance. They say that she wanders the bridges looking for help, and if you stop to help her, she reaches towards you with handless arms, which I don't know how she's going to grab you without hands. I don't know. But she's got handless arms, and she'll drag you until the lake and drown you. She's got really strong nubs. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Just her energy, like, okay, I'm coming. <laughs> Um, and, oh, and then this story I came across too was kind of crazy. Never heard about this, but I guess in 2012, 11 year old Kyle Glover, the son of Tamika Foster and the stepson of R&B singer Usher, what? was on the lake playing. He was in an inner tube with a friend, which was another 15 year old boy, um, being pulled by a, pl- a pontoon boat. He was struck by a jet ski being erratically driven by a family friend, Jeffrey Hubbard. Kyle was rushed to the children's hospital 
where he was declared brain dead, and two weeks later he was taken off life support. His friend survived with a broken arm and a small injury to his head. Jeffrey Hubbard was found guilty in 2014 of homicide by vessel, serious injury by vessel, and reckless operation, an unlawful operation of a personal watercraft, and he was cited for a boat traffic violation. So, <clears throat> a lo- among, like, the hundreds of deaths that have happened, I didn't know about this story. Yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh, when I was reading, because I was literally just researching, like, Lanier, and then this case came up, and it was actually, um, I think in 2022, last year, when Tamika, the mom, was trying to get, she was like, this lake is just far too dangerous. Like, I understand that this death ha- occurred because this person was being reckless on the water, but she's like, this lake is just dangerous in general. So she was trying to get officials to drain the lake and like actually clean it and restore it and like then refill it, which I know they're probably not going to do because that would cost millions of dollars. Yeah, that'd be a lot of work, but I can get her side. I mean, I, yeah, I did not know about that happening and Usher's like one of my favorite artists i know me too i love them that's what i read i was like i didn't even hear about that yeah but that's so sad it's really sad um in 2007 there was a drought and water levels dropped significantly when this happened um same more mounds were exposed so these are basically like native american burial grounds where they like put a bunch of rocks together and that's how you know that there's a burial underneath it yeah um their man-raised uh, sacred structures and that suggests exactly what they were guessing that there's a bunch of unmarked graves under this water that are probably mostly like native american graves so <clears throat> with all the deaths that occur there because um like i was saying earlier i watched this interview with this guy who he was talking about um he was part of like a search and rescue team and a woman had fallen into the lake and she like got embarrassed because she had to be saved by them and she kind of was like no I'm just like I'm embarrassed because I'm a lifeguard I'm really good at swimming and for some reason this water like I couldn't get out of it and and it's almost like they'll tell stories too where it sounds like um which could be made up too by the people who experience it but like they'll say that they feel like it's almost as though they're being pulled under the water by something or someone huh like they're feeling dead hands pulling them under. I was going to say, is it Delia just, like, causing problems all over? With her no hands? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, it's it's a very um, interesting link because if you look up, like, just their their website in general, they make it seem like such a popular, just, like, happy-go-lucky area for family to go. Like, they even have, like, a movie theater on the water where you can, like, float up and watch movies in the water, and then they have, like, obstacle courses and all this stuff, but, like, deaths occur there all the time and it's one of those places where the most deaths in a freshwater lake happen is there and even though there's millions and millions of people who visit each year they're like it's still too many deaths and they don't know if it's could be haunted or if it's cursed because of what they did they just went in and destroyed all this history you know well i mean yeah definitely like they destroyed like you said, like childhood homes, they dig it over burial grounds of Native Americans and others, you know, like 
there's all that. I think that's a possibility. I'm also like, there's also a part of me now, like now that I've read that book that I was talking about earlier, it's like, now I'm like, is there something scientific with the water or like the way it moves or something like the currents? Is there like, Oh, and I'm sure too, with like the, just the stuff that's down there. Like this one guy, um, that I watched videos of him and his partner too. They go like people who live off of the lake and have like decks into it and stuff. They'll hire him to like, Oh, I lost this. Can you go down there and find it? And he'll go down and pull out just so much stuff. And they'll be like, Oh my gosh, I didn't even realize like all that stuff was down there and how dangerous it is. Like he went into this one lady's little area and he found a, it wasn't by natives. I forget who he said it was, but it was like a teepee somebody had built where they tied a bunch of sticks together. Oh my gosh. And it was just sticking up right where her kids jump into the water. And oh so my it's God. like super dangerous and she's like I, how was am I supposed to know that was down there it's just like I don't know if people use it as a litter ground now on top of like what was already under there but it's just like stuff gets found down there all the time yeah it's like it's like some people a lot of people's hobbies too they go down there just to see what they can find yeah well, I, I wouldn't, it's like part of me would like to go down and see that, but then part of me is like terrified. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and then you see like a lady in a blue dress with no hands reaching for you <laughs> out of the water or a giant catfish. The giant catfish almost concerns <laughs> me more than exactly. that. I'll like capture it and let's make some food out of it. Out of that. <laughs> yeah. But yes, that is the story of Lake Lanier. That's crazy. Like I feel, I know that I've heard about the lake itself, but... And I may have heard a podcast about it, but for some reason I did not remember all of that craziness. <laughs> yeah, it was it was pretty cool researching it, but oh, I mean, it wasn't as much as I thought I would get for some reason, but yeah, that was just a little short little fun story after all your history you gave us. Yeah, after I <laughs> got you guys to do some learning. Yes, we learned it all. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for joining us again. Yes, thank you. And we look forward to seeing you the next time. Bye.